In the order of the the um, album, the order that was established for this album was to start with the Sabbath, to start with the Shabbos, the discussion of the Shabbos, and then to con- begin with the the major holidays, the Shalosh Regalim of Pesach and Shavuos, Passover and the Shavuot holiday. And the next in order would seemingly be logically dealing with the Shalosh Regalim would logically be Sukkos. But I departed from that normal order that one would expect after the Passover and Shavuos to do and not do Sukkot, but to do Elul instead as a preparation for Rosh Hashanah and Yom Kippur, because in a certain sense, Sukkot occupies uh, two, uh, two particular roles in terms of the calendar holidays. It is, in a certain sense, a continuation of the Shavuot, of the Passover and Shavuot cycle, but at the same time, it's intimately related to Rosh Hashanah and Yom Kippur, and being that it follow it has both roles to it, so I felt that it should come after Rosh Hashanah and Yom Kippur and complete both roles, and therefore Elul as a preparation for Rosh Hashanah and Yom Kippur would be most appropriate. Elul, which is the month, the Hebrew name for the month which precedes Rosh Hashanah, the holiday of Rosh Hashanah, the holiday of Yom Kippur, the holiday of Sukkot, it's the entire month that is before Rosh Hashanah and Yom Kippur. And interestingly enough, and nothing is a coincidence, tonight is the eve of the new month of Elul, just this evening. And I selected this as being one of the 12 uh, tapes to discuss. And you might think that it's a bit odd, because essentially the way Elul is looked upon in most people's eyes, those that are familiar with the concept of Elul, is that it's 30 days before Rosh Hashanah. It's time to, to get ready for Rosh Hashanah, to try to make some kind of a personal account. It's, let's say, a 30-day notice or a 30-day warning period and, you know, like try to get our act together so that when we enter the synagogue on the day of Rosh Hashanah, on that day of judgment, and then furthermore on Yom Kippur, the day of atonement, that we more or less have our papers and our accounts in order and we know exactly what we have to straighten out and what we're asking for. 30 days of preparation finished. If that would be the case, so to dedicate that this is one of the 12 uh, areas to discuss in terms of the Jewish calendar seems to be a little bit lopsided. You know, um, but the truth of the matter is that, that the month of Elul is really a creation in time. As much as any other holiday is, the month of Elul is a creation in time. And I'm going to try to share with you some of the proofs of that. The same way that Passover is a creation in time and there is a spiritual present of redemption in the time of Passover every year. Similarly, the month of Elul has within it a spiritual gift. That is a creation of time in the month of Elul. And in that sense, I treat it in much the same way that I would treat Pesach, Shavuos, Sukkot, or any other holiday. But let's deal with some of the proofs, because the proofs are not only proofs, but they will also open up to an understanding of what Elul is about and create a much healthier atmosphere for ourselves, a much healthier attitude towards what the high holidays are all about. The, um, this might be a little bit of a, somewhat of a scary kind of a proof, 
but it, it is a conclusive proof. There is a verse in the prophets which say the following, Aryeh Sha'ag Milayira. If the lion roars, who doesn't have fear? There's a verse like that. In other words, if you walk by and all of a sudden a lion's roaring in your face, your, your heart skips a beat. You get scared. And the Talmud says that the word Aryeh is spelled Aleph Resh Yud Hey. That's the way it's spelled. And the Talmud says that each letter refers to something. The Aleph refers to Elul, which is the first letter of the word Elul. The Resh refers to Rosh Hashanah, because the first letter of Rosh Hashanah is a Resh. The Yud refers to Yom Kippur, because the first letter is the Yud. And the He of Aryeh refers to Hoshana Rabbah which is at the end of the entire forgiveness period, the seventh day of Sukkot is Hoshana Rabbah, and that's the f- uh, fulfillment of forgiveness. And the verse then is saying, when we have the opportunity of these four times, El, Rosh Hashanah, Yom HaKippur, and Hoshana Rabbah, who is not fearful of this period of time? And essentially what it means, who is not fearful of this period of time, what it means is, who is not fearful that he will not rise to the challenge, but the opportunity that this period of time has for us. It's a time for change, it's a time for new commitment, it's a time to acquire forgiveness, it's a time to rechannel one's energies. It's a beautiful time. And Milo Yira, who isn't fearful that they won't utilize that time to the best. As the, the great Hasidic master, the Baal Shem Tov, once said, King David says in Psalms the following statement, Ki imcha aslicha, with God is forgiveness. Lamanti and is for that reason that I have fear. So all of the commentaries ask, it's the exact opposite. If there's forgiveness by God, that's why I shouldn't have fear. So the Baal Shem Tov answers, and the Baal Shem Tov says something which is very beautiful. Were there not to be an aspect of forgiveness on God's part, we could all give up and not feel bad about it because nobody can be a perfect ten. Nobody can go through life without making mistakes. So we're doomed before we start. So what's there to be afraid of? Afraid is only if there's a question, maybe I'll make it, maybe I won't. So, but if there's no way of making it because I have to be perfect and less than perfect, there's no way of correcting it. So what's there to be afraid of? I know before I start, I'll, I'll blow it. I can't do any, I'll do my best, but I'm going to blow it and finish but the Baal Shem Tov says that's what the uh, King David is saying. Ki imcha aslicha. God's not expecting the perfect ten. God knows that man makes mistakes. But ki imcha aslicha. But God says after you make the mistake, at least use the opportunity of forgiveness that I give you. Oh, if I have an opportunity to to use to to get forgiveness and to correct my mistake, then I have to begin worrying because then I have to worry that I won't use the opportunities of forgiveness. The opportunity of being a perfect ten is ridiculous. Nobody can. Solomon the king, the wisest of all people, said, There's no person that can say that he's a perfect ten in righteousness. Everybody makes mistakes. So it would be a give-up situation. But there's forgiveness, there's the opportunity. So it's almost as if God doesn't expect us not to make mistakes. God expects us to make mistakes. But what God expects us is to use the opportunities of correcting the mistakes. Because I'm there to forgive. I'm there to help you correct the mistake. But it's an opportunity, and that's why I'm afraid. I'm afraid that maybe I won't call, come to the call of the opportunity of forgiveness. And that's the attitude. Aryeh Sha'ak. The lion is roaring. In other words, there's a, there's a roaring. 
change. Use the opportunity, Milayira, and, ha- won't, and how can I not be fearful that I won't use the opportunity? But the reason why I'm bringing it is not so much that you should imagine the lion's roar or that you should get scared this evening, but I'm bringing it that it's so fascinating how the word spells out on equal parallel. Elul, Rosh Hashanah, Yom Kippur, and Hashanah Rabbah. Now, to put Elul there together with Rosh Hashanah and together with Yom Kippur and together with Hashanah Rabbah is a major statement. It's saying that Elul is not simply just the preparation, a 30-day notice period, net 30-day kind of thing. It's something more than that. It's something more than that. What is it? The word Elul is a tremendous play on words in, 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 in many different examples, which I would like to share with you because each one communicates the flavor of what Elul is, which I'd like to share with you. <coughs> First of all, there is an expression, Ani Lidodi Vidodi Li. I am to my loved one. This is a reference of the Jew to God. The Dodi Lee and my loved one is on to me. A love relationship. I am to, to God and God is on to me. Very lovely, very romantic. Ani Lidodi, the Dodi Lee, the first letter of each one of those four words spells out the word Elul. Spells out the word Elul. As if to say Elul is the beginning of a courtship with God. Ani Lidodi, I am on to God. Fidodi Lee and my beloved one is on to me. It's a courtship with God. And it's very interesting because we don't look at Elul as a preparation for Rosh Hashanah as some kind of a romantic affair. We see it as something fearful. We have a lot of, uh, we have a lot of thinking to do, a lot of introspection to do, a lot of cleaning up house to do. But this, this romantic relationship, where does this come into Elul? seems to be a little bit off base. But if it's the definition of the very word Elul, it must be the spirit of what it's all about. <clears throat> there is a portion in the Torah which talks about if a person kills by accident, that he had to run to a city of refuge. There are various cities of refuge, three in Israel proper, three on the other side of the Jordan. And he had to stay there for a measure of time until the high priest died, and then he was able to come out of the cities of refuge and he was protected in the cities of refuge. One of the reference, the way the Torah describes this is that if you killed by accident, it's something that God was involved in. God, God had a reason why this was to happen. And the way the verse says it is you didn't do it with intent or with malice, but v'helikim, God, inaliyado, he made it, he brought it to my life, this circumstance. Vasanti Lacha, and I will make for you Makom a place to run to. So if you spell out the words Vasanti Lacha, it also spells the first letter spells Elul. As if to say Elul is a place of refuge for having made mistakes. It's a place of refuge, it's a place of protection. What does it mean? One more, two more which all reflect, it's phenomenal how many words spell out Elul and there must be some kind of a message in this. At the end of Deuteronomy, we speak about the fact, we talk about Mashiach's times, the times when the Messiah will come. And it says there, and God will circumcise the negativity from your heart. There too, the first letters spell out Elul again. And then finally, there is a prayer that we say every morning except on Shabbos and on holidays. It's a little psalm 
Mizmer Lasoda, which is really uh, a psalm of thanksgiving to God for having come out of danger, danger that I've realized, a danger that I have not realized. Sometimes we get free of danger and we don't even know that we were ever in danger. And there, we, there are two words there. There are two words there. The literal way that it's written, it, the two words are loy anachnu. We are not. Lo anachnu. That's the way it's written. But the way that we, the connotation of it, the meaning of it, the way it's, the way we relate to it is lo alamid, not with an aleph, which means no, but lo with a va, alamid with a va, which means lo anachnu. You belong to us. So, lo, lamid aleph, lo, lamid vav, together again spell elul. Mm-hmm. Right? So, the written and the, and the way it's written, the lo, lamid aleph, and the way it's read, lo, lamid with a vav, again spell the word elul. And again, the question is, what is this all supposed to mean? In order to, to unravel this mystery of all of the spellings of the word of Elul, and in fact to try to understand what, the, what Elul is all about, <clears throat> it's important to reel back in history to the first Elul that the Jewish people experienced as a nation. Much in the same way that the holiday of Passover and the holiday of Shavuos and the holiday of Yom Kippur and the holiday of Sukkot, all commemorated and all were, in, were sourced in that first year of the Jewish experience as a nation, Elul was also something that we as a nation experienced that first year when we left Egypt. And in order to appreciate where it fits in the historical pattern, I will go through it very briefly. The Jew left Egypt, and the dates are not important unless you're a, his, a history bug. The Jew left Egypt on 15 days in the month of Nisan. Fifteen days in the month of Nisan. <clears throat> Seven weeks later, on six days in Sivan, the Jews stood around the mountain of Sinai, heard the Ten Commandments. Six days in Sivan. All right. Now, after that, on the seventh day of Sivan, a day later, Moses began a 40-day learning process on the mountain with God to learn all of the particulars of the Torah. There is more to the Torah than just Ten Commandments. So he stayed on the mountain for 40 days, learning the 613 mitzvahs with all of the nuances, with all of the quote-unquote technicalities, with all of the secrets of the Torah, with all of the Kabbalah, with all of the mysticism of the Torah. Anything that a disciple would ever reveal in Torah was revealed to Moses in those 40 days, and everything was transmitted to Moses in those 40 days. Moses came down on 17 days in Tammuz. That was 40 days later. And by the Jews' calculation, he was a day late. And there's an entire discussion why there was a mistake in the calculation. And they had feared that Moses, you'll excuse the expression, just spaced out of this world. He was gone, gone forever. And here the Jew was left in a desert, leaderless. And they decided that they were going to make a golden calf and the ones that did it for the seemingly righteous reasons were doing it as a symbolism, not as an idol worship, but it landed up being idol worship. Moses came down and he was aghast at what he saw. He saw a golden calf. He saw idols. He took the Ten Commandments, the two tablets which now were coming down, and he smashed them at the foot of the mountain. This was on 17 days in Thomas. This is not for you. Until you clean up your act, you can't have this. This is not for you. And we've spoken about that concept in the past. 
Then he went and he found out who actually worshipped the, the golden calf, and there was a punishment for idol worship, and so on and so forth. And a day later, on 18 days in Thomas, Moses went up, and Moses began to pray for forgiveness for the Jewish people for the sin of the golden calf. God had held all of the people responsible because if they weren't involved in it, but they were at least quiet, they were quiet and complacent about what was going on and they didn't stop it. And God saw in this the possibility for the, for the annihilation, God forbid, of the Jewish people. And Moses stood for 40 days on the mountain of Sinai praying for forgiveness. I'm their teacher. I will inspire them. I will bring them back. I will correct it. In fact, the minute Moses came down from the mountain, they left the golden calf because they realized their mistake and that was it. So they weren't into it, so to speak, in a big way. In any case, it was a sin. It was a sin of major proportions because it represented a tremendous spiritual plummeting from the giving of Torah on Sinai. And he prayed for 40 days. What happened at the end? He came down 29 days in of, 40 days later, which is today, 29 days in of. He came down with no message of forgiveness. He only came down with one message. Moses, you can rewrite the two tablets, the Ten Commandments. You may rewrite them and rise again tomorrow morning and learn the Torah over again in the next 40 days. And in those 40 days, in that third period of 40 days, beginning with this evening, Rosh Chodesh Elul, going for 40 days till 10 days in Tishrei, which is our Day of Atonement, Moses was involved in relearning the Torah. We were involved in prayer and in tshuva and in returning to God. And finally, on the 10th day of Tishrei, 40 days later, Moses came down with the newly written Ten Commandments, with a message of forgiveness, total forgiveness for the sin of the golden calf. Pandemonium broke loose. They had finally accomplished their forgiveness. And then we go into the holiday of Sukkot. Now, what do we know from this historical event? I've left out one thing which I'm going to come back to, but what do we know? We know that the period of Elul, beginning with the, the very first day of Elul, going till 40 days later, the Day of Atonement, on 10 days in Tishrei, we know that this was a period of time where Moses was re relearning Torah with God, which needs to be understood, what Moses forgot it all. Moses didn't do the sin of the golden calf. What was Moses doing? Learning the Torah again for 40 days. But Moses was learning it all over again, right? and it wasn't the New Testament. And, God, and we were involved, and we were involved and we were involved in prayer and in tshuva, and it finally pinnacled. It came to its peak on that Day of Atonement when we got the message of forgiveness, and with the forgiveness we got the tablets that we had lost on 17 days in Thomas. <clears throat> so obviously it is a period of time, which is a period of time of prayer, it's a period of time of tshuva, of returning to God, and it is a period of time that finally ended in the success of forgiveness. Now, there is one very interesting fact that we know about Elul, which I haven't included, was that when Moses went up on the mountain on Rosh Chodesh Elul for the third period of 40 days, Mo, they blew shofar. They blew a shofar, as if to say, this is the line of demarcation, and we begin counting the 40-day period from today. And they blew the shofar. And the Pirkei de Rebeleza says, God received an elevation 
whatever that's supposed to mean, from that blowing of the shofar. And it is for this reason that it is custom that beginning with the Rosh Chodesh Elul, we blow shofar in the shul every single morning. Not the hundred vo- not the hundred sounds, but a commemoration of the blowing of the shofar that took place at the beginning of Elul. <coughs> and obviously, what we have to ask, aside of the fact, is why is Moses learning the Torah all over again? We also have to ask ourselves, what is so significant about the blowing of the shofar to demarcate the day? They had calendars. They had other ways of figuring it out. What does it mean that God was elevated by the blowing of the shofar? And it becomes part of Jewish custom and tradition to begin blowing the shofar with the beginning of the month of Elul. In any case, in any case, the historical sketch that I have given you opens us up to investigate many areas. A couple of weeks ago, we read a review of this. And in the review, it says that God, Moses is telling the Jewish people everything that happened in the 40 years. And this is really like a review so that they shouldn't make the same mistakes in the future. And he says, and I, I fell before God in prayer for 40 days as the first 40 days that I was there. So the, the Talmud Rashi brings it. Rashi says that what Moses is saying is that the last 40 days that Moses was uh, on the mountain were equal to the first 40 days. The same way that in the first 40 days Moses learned the Torah and the Jew was free of sin, in the last 40 days God's feeling for his people and his commitment to his people to give them a Torah was with the same ratzon, with the same willingness, with the same love. And Rashi comes along and says, the last 40 were like the first 40, but how about the middle 40? Let's not touch those middle 40. Our boim yaim, the 40 days in between, from Shivasa Batamas till Rosh Chodesh El, Yemei Kas, they were days of God's anger. God had anger. God was annoyed with what was going on, and it was certainly nowhere near uh, uh, um, some kind of forgiveness. So the first 40 were grand, uh, glorious days. The last 40 were glorious days. And the 40 in between, those are the days that stand out as you may cast. They are the days that God is annoyed with us. What comes out of this whole discussion is, and we're going to come back to this, it's very, each part of this is important to appreciating what Elul is, but the last 40 days, which begin with Elul, go to the Day of Atonement, in our literature are referred to in, by two words, Ace Ratzon, a time of willingness on God's part. Ace Ratzon. It is a time of God willing to listen to man. That's Ace Ratzon. And this word Ace Ratzon, I must tell you, has problems because God does not change. God isn't willing one day and unwilling another day. There's no real concept of change mm-hmm. by God. The concepts of change are by us. We change. One day we're worthy to receive, the next day we're not, and hopefully we'll change and we'll become worthy to receive. So the changes are essentially in us. But the idea that there is a period of time that if you get God in that period of time, you got Him. You can convince Him. You can persuade Him. It's a good time. You know, like when we were children or even when we're grown-ups when we have to petition our parents or our spouse for something, we wait for a good mood. Uh, to get it, to ask at that time. That's what this sounds like. It's an ace rutzen. You've got to get God in a good time. So this is a good time, so this is the time to start making the changes. It sounds very peculiar. What is it supposed to mean, an ace rutzen? 
<coughs> in order to to fully explain this, what I'd like to do is I would like to share with you something that we started a number of weeks ago in a different class, which I'd like to fully develop. In the month of Elul, there are four readings, classically. Shoftim, which we're going to read this Shabbos, Kiseitzeh, next Shabbos, Kisava, the one after it, and Nitzavim, and sometimes Nitzavim Vayelech. It's unimportant uh, what, you know, what their names are. Each one of the four portions has a message that relates to Rosh Hashanah. And for this evening, I would like to deal, take the message out of Kiseitzeh because it's very pertinent to what we're doing this evening. The portion of Kiseitse opens up with the Jew going out to a war and taking in captives in war. And all of a sudden, a Jewish soldier sees a pretty woman. Now, she's not Jewish, so there's a problem. There's not a problem, but he's madly in love. She's gorgeous. She's beautiful. I must marry her. So the Torah says, well, if we're going to forbid this in this particular situation, it won't be good because we'll just do it against the Torah. So God permits them to live together once and after that, the Torah says that there is a process that, the, that has to be done. What is the process? So I'll describe the process briefly to you. You take her home. You don't... Um, uh, she has to cut her hair. She has to get rid of all of her adornments. She has to get rid of all of the pishkifkis, as they're called, all of the things that lure people. And you, and you have to be able to see and find in her her inner beauty, not just her superficial beauty. Without all of the, the rouge and the powder and everything else. And she's supposed to stay in your home underfoot for 30 days, for 30 days, and there she will cry because she has been taken away from her people. And if after 30 days she still looks good to you and you want to marry her, then you go through a process of conversion and then you can marry her. This is briefly. But the Torah says, And if maybe, maybe it'll come out that you won't like her after 30 days, as if to say that's exactly what's going to happen, when everything's away, so then you must send her away, not take advantage of her in any way, and you know, and, uh, and not do anything which is inappropriate with her. Fine. Now, to tell you the truth, this portion of the Torah is interpreted by two major commentaries completely differently. Rashi, the major commentary on the Chumash, says that the entire process is a process that hopefully is leading to the exit door. That's what we're looking for. The inclination grabbed him. He couldn't control himself, so the Torah is going through a process. And the real hope, and even the prophecy is, that you'll most probably say at the end of 30 days, she's not as beautiful as I thought she was, and I don't have to marry her. This is Rashi's approach. The Ramban, Nachmanides' approach, is totally different. Nachmanides' approach is that going to war, a Jewish war, in the times of, that the Chumash describes, the people that went to war were extremely spiritual people. In fact, if a person had any sins that he was knowledgeable of, he wasn't allowed to go to war because he would not be able to withstand the tests of war, and who says that he would be meritorious on the battlefront if he wasn't spiritually pure and clean? 
So the people that went to war were very special people. So to assume that because he went to war, all of a sudden he's going to get lured in, I know everybody's human, but to just explain it this way, the Nachmanides says it doesn't make sense. The Nachmanides and Arachayim as well developed the concept that there are neshamos, there are souls, that become trapped in the nations of the world that are really Jewish souls. And my attraction, my attraction to this person can be a secret language that is being told to my neshama via that person's neshama. That's what it could be. So therefore, we go through a process of getting rid of all of the physical things that might be the lore, but the Nachmani's attitude is, get rid of all of the nonsense, and then if you can see a neshama, this is a neshama that has to be saved, this is a soul that has to be brought into the Jewish people, this has to be brought closer to us, and Nachmanides' whole attitude is not the exit door, but Nachmanides' attitude is that the 30 days is a purification process in order for the person to come grips with a soul that might be hidden very deep within this person, and that's Nachmanides' way. So Nachmanides' way is in fact saying that we're trying to see if this is a person that really belongs. Rashi seems to be saying that this is really out, trying to get the person out the door. Right. Seemingly very different. Very, very different. I must tell you that the, the Torah is understood on many levels. I just gave you the literal level with two opposing viewpoints. But the Torah is also to be understood on deeper levels as well. <laughs> symbolic levels. Figurative levels. And the symbolic level of this particular portion of the Torah is very fascinating because it says the following, When you will go out to war against your enemy, so the commentaries say your greatest enemy, your greatest battle, your greatest war is with your, yourself, with the negative inclination that is part of you. And you go out into the world and you get sucked into all kinds of negative inclinations, but you want to get rid of it. So the Torah now gives you a process. Try to take away little by little all of the neon lights and take away all of the persuasions and see the thing for what it is. And hopefully when you do that process of going out to war, getting rid of all of the outside superficial things, the neon light concept, hopefully you'll see the negative inclination for what it is. You'll turn it around. You'll give it a kick in the pants and say, I don't want you in my life. And that's the symbolic deeper meaning for this Kisei Tzela Milchama, going out to war, going out to war against the negative inclination within yourself. Fine. Very, very, very lovely. But we have a rule which Rabbi Dessler shares with us in his essays, and he says that while on the literal translation we can have different, differing viewpoints, but in the deeper meanings of the Torah there cannot be differing viewpoints. So, let me share, I'll, t I'll tell you where I'm coming from. This needs just a drop of Talmudic logic, but we all have it. On the literal level, there's two ways of going. It's either an exit door, like Rashi says, or like Nachmanides, it's bringing in. Okay? So there's one saying, we're trying to get the person out, the other one saying, we're trying to get the person in. Now, on the deeper level, on the deeper level, the concept of fighting the negative inclination and getting rid of the inclina negative inclination, that deeper level, what does it parallel? Does it parallel Rashi of getting rid of, or does it parallel Nachmanides, which means bringing in? Which one does it parallel? 
obviously it parallels the, the, the uh, interpretation of getting rid of. Rashi learns, get, we're hoping that you'll get rid of her. On the deeper level, we hope that you're going to get rid of your negative inclination. Right? So there's a literal and there's a deeper that parallels it. How about Nachmanides? Nachmanides on the literal level talks about what? Talks about bringing in. What is the deeper level of, of that? Of getting rid of, we know, bounce out your negative inclination. But bringing in, which is Nachmanides' way on the literal, what is the parallel on the deeper level for that? So I must share with you something which is tremendously beautiful. The Arachayim, another commentary on the Chumash, tells us the following thing. He says, when you go out to war against your enemy, yes, it means war on the symbolic level against your negative inclination. But, and you will see in captivity this beautiful woman, this beautiful woman is not a symbolism of the negative inclination, but it is a symbolism of your neshama, of your soul. Your soul is beautiful. It's a yifas tower. It's a raving beauty of potential. <coughs> and you're going out to war and you want to conquer your negative inclination. You want to conquer your negative inclination. And you come to realize that what are you trying to release? What are you trying to get out of captivity? Ashes yifas tower. You are trying to release from captivity a deep beauty that is within you, your neshama. The Chashaktaba. And even though you're, you're very distant from this beautiful woman within you, the Chashaktaba, there's something within you that says that you love it and you want to be with it and you want to live with it and you want to grow with it. The Chashaktaba. The Lakachta and you want to build a family with that Neshama. So the Torah says in order to be able to do that, there are things that you have to do. You have to get rid of a lot of the things that bury the neshama. All of the materialism and all of the things that confuse you, that don't give you the ability to see that beautiful neshama. And the Yarachayim says, you take, you take off this ornament, that ornament, it all means to take off the materialism to be able to find that beautiful woman that's inside of you, the neshama. And then what does the verse say? ima, And you should cry for your mother and your father, Yerach Yamim, for 30 days. So the Arachayim says, You should cry for your father, your father is God. Ves'ima, and you should cry for the Jewish people, that is your family. Yerach Yamim, for 30 days. And the Arachayim says, Zechidesh Elul. This is the month of Elul. Now, what is the Arachayim saying? What is the Arachayim saying to us? Let's first get the technical aspects out of the way. On a symbolic level, what is the Torah talking about? Fighting the negative inclination. But in a war, when we fight, there are two things that we have to do. We have to assess the power of the enemy, the strength of the enemy. We also have to make an inventory of our own strength. Do we know our own strength and not know the strength of the enemy? We won't win the war. If we know the strength of the enemy but we don't know how to evaluate our own strength, we will also not win the war. In order to win a war, we have to deal with both. We have to know the strength of the enemy and we have to know our own strength. So really, Nachmanides and 
Both interpretations are saying the same thing. On a symbolic level, we're out to win a war. We're out to win a war against the negative inclination. So one interpretation says, see the negative inclination for all the ugliness that it truly is and get rid of it. The Arachayim says, on the other hand, in order to win the war, you can only win the war if you know the strength that you have. Just knowing what the negative inclination is and trying to get rid of the negative inclination is not going to win a war. When you want to go fight the war, you have to know that this war is worth fighting for because you're saving from captivity a beautiful potential, a neshama, a beautiful soul. And this is you and you have the strength to do it and it's worth the fight to do it. So even though on the literal level Rashi is saying bounce out, and according to Nachmanides it's bring in, but really on the deeper level they're both saying two, two, two sides of a coin, but it's one coin. What we're dealing with is the ne- trying to grow, trying to get rid of the negative inclination that denies who we are. So one interpretation says get rid of what you have to get rid of, know what it is and get rid of it. The other interpretation is but know the beauty that you're saving, know the beauty that you are, know the strength that you have. So really on the deeper level both interpretations come together. On the literal level one is an exit door and one is a bringing in. But on the deeper level there are two parts of a whole. It's how we fight. We're going out to fight a war. We want to, we want to find ourselves. And we come to realize that our greatest potentials are Bashivya. They're in captivity. And there's a tremendous desire. There's a process by which we begin to cry. We begin to cry for God. We want God. We want the family of the Jewish people. We want to belong to that family. That's the month of Elul. Now, knowing this, knowing this, we can now come back and develop everything that we are talking about. <coughs> if after knowing the Arachayim, we come back and we ask ourselves, what is Elul? What is the month of Elul all about? What is it all about? So the Arachayim is telling us very beautifully that yes, it's a month in which we have to bring out the account sheets and look at all of the red stuff and everything else. Yes, and we're trying to deal with it and it's all true. But there's something, a message which is often lost in Elul. That Elul is the concept of regaining access and relationship to the tremendous beauty of the neshama that's within us. And I begin to cry for my father and for my mother for a month of days. What it means is that I begin to develop a sensitivity and a feeling, a feeling for the beauty that has evaded me, the beauty that's really me, the beauty that's part of everything that's inside of me, that, that's evaded me. I've lost it, I've covered it up with a lot of junk. But it's there, it's part of me, it's my essence. And this is what I'm trying to bring out of captivity. And that's really what the essence of Elul is all about. <clears throat> once we understand it in this way, once we understand it in this way, it becomes easier to understand the Anila Daidi Vidaidi Li. I am to my loved one, and my loved one is to me. 
Where do we come off with the beginning of Elul to stand before God after 11 notorious months and say to God, I am to my beloved one and my beloved one is to me. Come off it. Where were you the last 11 months? Where's this Anila Dodi business? But the idea is that just like in a relationship, if I think that I'm a rag, I won't be any good in a relationship because if I don't feel that I'm anything good for myself, I can't bring anything to a relationship and have a healthy relationship. It's the same thing with God. It's the same thing with God. El is the beginning of cultivating a new relationship. Cultivating a new relationship does not begin with man starting the overture to God and saying to God, I'm a nothing, I'm a failure, I did a million wrong things this year, I'm sorry, let's start over again. That's not how a relationship starts. I'm not bringing anything to the relationship. There's a neshama inside of me that the only other thing in this world that's even similar to it is you, God. There's a shidduch here, there's compatibility here. There's a yafas tire, there's a beautiful thing in me that's very much compatible with you. This is, there's compatibility here, there's a partnership here. I feel that I've been out of contact with it, I've lost touch with it, a lot of things have covered it up, right? but I want to bring it out. And that's my basis for talking to you. That's my basis for wanting a relationship. I'm not just dreaming about somebody that I'll never be able to marry. Anila Daidi. Yes, there's something in me that's, that's to my beloved one. There's a part of me which is beautiful and I darn know that it is. Anila Daidi Vidaidi Lee. When Moses went up on Rosh Chodesh Elul, when Moses went up on Rosh Chodesh Elul, and they blew Shaifer. Now, let me tell you that when they blew the Shaifer on Rosh Chodesh Elul, they weren't a bunch of nincompoops. They knew how to count days. All right? They might not have had calculators, but they knew how to count days. They figured out what their mistake was the first time. They knew what their mistake was. They, weren't, they were only supposed to count full days, day and night. Moses went up by day, so that day really didn't count in the 40 days. It didn't count in the 40 days. You only count full days, day and night together. Since he went up in the morning and the night before he didn't go up, so that day didn't count. So they knew their mistake. So when Moses goes up the second, third time, so they blow the shepherd so they should know when to count the 40 days. You know when to count the 40 days from. Write it down on a piece of paper. What's the blowing of the shepherd? But the answer is very simple. When you're dealing in cool, calculated stuff and you're making business deals and everything else, you work with probabilities. In all probability, there won't be a mistake. There's a 100 to 1 chance that I'll make a mistake. No, in business we do those things. Not a problem. But how about if we're not talking about business but we're talking about a relationship? We'll, we'll go much, much further to make sure that the mistake doesn't happen again if we value the relationship. A hundred to one odds that the mistake won't happen again is not enough for us if the relationship is very important. We'll need a thousand to one. We'll need a million to one. So when they blew that shaifer as an extra line of demarcation, what they were saying is that the relationship is too important to us to make a mistake again. That was what God heard in the shaifer. God heard in the shaifer the words, the relationship with you, God, is too important to us to make another mistake and to make it worse. 
When God heard that, God had tremendous fulfillment. God had tremendous elevation from that. Because God heard in the blowing of that shofar that man was valuing the relationship and was trying to do everything to guarantee that the relationship would not be threatened. God, God was, God heard the beckoning of man to him in those, in those sounds of the shofar. And essentially, this is why it has become tradition that with the beginning of El, we begin to blow the shofar as if to say, whatever mistakes we made, right, we're coming to a grinding halt. We don't want to make the relationship worse. The relationship is worth too much to us. We have what to bring to the relationship. But I've made a lot of mistakes. I haven't lived by what I can be in the relationship. But with the beginning of Rosh Chodesh El, we're saying that we have to work on the relationship. This is a month to work on the relationship, cultivating the relationship. And that's really what the shofar means in terms of the tradition at the beginning of Elul. Now, <coughs> coming back and, and discussing this a little bit more and trying to analyze this a little bit more, There is an obvious question which you're all going to ask, and this is where things get a little bit hot and heavy. There's a question which we have to ask. What did I, what did I describe Elul as being? I described Elul as being a sense that I'm worth something. I have what to bring to a relationship with God. The relationship with God is important, and I don't want to make any more menacing damage to the relationship that has already been made. This is all lofty. A joke. You mean to tell me? You mean to tell me that this is what I'm all about when El begins? This is ridiculous. This is a lot of nonsense. I, I was never there, or I was there and I left it, or there are three generations behind me that don't know anything about it. What's this whole? What's all of this all about? How does it relate to me? Yeah, tonight I all of a sudden feel that I'm not a rag I'm looking for a relationship I don't want to menace the relationship yeah, poof, it's some kind of magic with the beginning of El well, what's going on here? so for those of you that are in, in a, into astrology this might be a little bit more interesting but, uh, and it's not because I have to dip into astrology to come up with a good answer but the mo- every month has a certain quality that personifies the month Every month. The quality which personifies the month of Elul is referred to as Besula, which translated into English is virgin. That is the characteristic of the month of Elul, Besula. And what does this mean? What does this mean? So, in our mystical literature, this is explained in the following way. And I will read the words, the exact words. Yesh Nakuda Pnimius. There is a very innermost point, Benefish Yisrael, in the soul of every Jew, Shein Shamaga Nachri, that all strange hands cannot reach it, cannot taint it, cannot destroy it, can't do anything to it. Ganol, it remains like the closed garden, Mayon Chasum, like the closed wellspring. 
Al Zehanakuta, and it's based upon that part of the Neshama that no matter what happens all year long, it remains untouched. Basula, virgin, it remains totally untouched. Nemar Anila Dodi. Because there is a part of the Neshama that always remains untouched, there is a sense between the Neshama of every Jew and God, Anila Daiti, that I belong to you, God. Anila Daiti, I belong to you. In other words, were every part of the Neshama to be dragged down and mischanneled and used just towards materialistic ends, Yes, it would be possible that a person would never be able to make the statement, I really belong to you, God, and I want a relationship with you, God, and it's meaningful to me. But being that there is an aspect of besula in the neshama, there's an aspect of virginity in the neshama that remains untouched, if we know it on conscious intellectual levels, is unimportant. But there's something in my neshama that says, Anila Daidi. I belong to God. I'm worthy to have a relationship with God. Anila Daiti. Because that point never loses its contact. No matter what is dumped, no matter how many millions of tons of trash are dumped on the Neshama, that Nakuda remains clean. It remains untouched. And it says the Anila Daiti. But this untouched part of the Neshama doesn't feel and doesn't relate to God with Anila Dodi all year long. There are special times where that untouched part of the Neshama screams out for a relationship with God. That's the month of Elul. God allows the untouched part of the Neshama to make the statement, Anila Dodi, I want you God, and I deserve you God. Not only I want you God, but I deserve you God because of the exaltedness of who I am, this is not something that we can find or that we can access all the time. There is something in the time of Elul that wakes up that besula within me that makes the statement of Anila Dodi. And then, based upon the motivation of wanting God and making changes because you want God, God then responds back to man and says to man, the Dodi Lee, and I want you. It's a reciprocal relationship. Now, what made this time of the year, the time of the year where the basula within us wakes up and begs for God? What happened? So I must relate to you something from the Talmud which is very fascinating. And we'll turn around our entire attitude to this entire period of time. The Gemara says the following. The Gemara says, The sin of the golden calf, which began the whole history that led up to Elul and the Day of Atonement. The Jew wasn't really in the bracket of doing that kind of a sin. Where does the Jew, after standing around in the mountain of Sinai, compared to angels, 40 days later, he's worshipping a golden calf? It's not their wavelength. Where did they get to this? So the Talmud says something which is very, very disturbing as an answer. God wanted the Jew to sin because by sinning, this generation would do tshuva. And by doing tshuva and then being accepted, no Jew to the end of times would ever be able to say that if I make a mistake and do tshuva, God won't accept it. 
because there's a role model. There's a whole generation of great people that did a major crime and they did tshuva and God accepted them again. So God purposely wanted that these Jews should sin so that they should do tshuva and become models for generations in the future. There is no Jew that can use the excuse that tshuva won't help, that change won't help. It helped for them, it can help for me. This is what the Talmud says. Now I must tell you that this is a tremendous, there's a tremendous problem here. First of all, to some of you, it most probably sounds, wow, what a cop-out, trying to get them off the hook. It wasn't their, pro- wasn't their fault. God made them sin so that they should do tshuva. It's a cop-out. Right. But that's not the major problem. Let's talk along logical planes before we argue the cop-out argument. If they were l- pushed into it, God wanted them to sin, so then when they do tshuva and they return to God and God accepts it, that doesn't remain an example for where God doesn't want man to sin. If they sinned because God wanted it, so then where's your proof that tshuva is good? Tshuva is good for them because it wasn't really them. They were forced into sin. God wanted them to sin. So that's why after they returned, God said, it's all right, it wasn't your fault to begin with. So so where's the proof to generations where God doesn't want man to sin? They sinned and it was against, they didn't really want to, but God preferred that they should sin. So that's why their tshuva was accepted. But another generation that God wasn't involved in their sin, who says that tshuva helps? That's number one. Number two, it's ridiculous to assume that God wants man to sin in order that he should do tshuva afterwards. This is all together. This is this. Now that doesn't fit on a tape, but this is backwards. It doesn't make any sense. Thirdly, if God wants to tell us that tshuva helps, it says it very vividly in the Torah. All of our prophets tell us that if we'll return in the name of God, that it'll help. We needed guinea pigs. We needed to find a generation as great as they were and make them sin. It doesn't make any sense. So the commentaries explain that what the Talmud is really saying is that this generation were such great people, such righteous people, that they reached the level that God would protect them that they shouldn't even come into the parameters of being tempted to sin. God watches His righteous ones. That they don't even come near tempta- temptation. You don't have to be bothered with it. You've, 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 you've already ascended spiritually and I'll protect you. You don't have to deal with the nonsense of the world. So that really was the level of that generation. But God said, if I'm going to protect them that they'll never even come into the parameter of sin so then there's no possibility that they'll ever sin even by their own choice. If there's no possibility that they'll ever sin by their own choice, they'll never have to do tshuva. That's unacceptable to me. So what I'm going to do is I'm not going to make them sin, but I'm not going to give them the protection. Let them do their best. If they'll be in the parameters of sin and they'll resist it, fine. Fine. But if they're in the parameters of sin and they don't resist it, that's also fine. Because at least then they'll do tshuva. Now, what's coming out of this? What's coming out of this is the following. God wouldn't force them into sin, but God will take away the things that prevent them from sinning, and then it's their own choice. And God says the following thing. If they won't sin, fine. If they will sin, that's also fine. If they will sin, that's also fine. What's going on here? So, here the Maralmi Prague says a monumental statement, which is very important for us to deal with. The Maral says the following thing. The Maral says that 
We talk about loving kindness. We talk about discipline. We talk about truth. These are attributes that came down from our forefathers, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob. We have loyalty. We have loving kindness. We have a yearning for truth because we are the descendants of those great forefathers. They brought these beautiful things into the world. So the morale says, and what's about tshuva? Most of us think that tshuva is the process for the mistaken person, for the weak person, for the person that goofed, for the person that blew it. The morale says you got it all wrong. Tshuva is one of the greatest strengths of the neshama of man. And it needs great people to bring into the world. It's a tremendous thing. It's a beautiful thing. It's just like chesed. It's just like emes. It's like loving kindness and it's like truth. And we needed forefathers to bring it into the world. The energy of tshuva is phenomenal. It needs people to create it. And after it's created, we as descendants and having the spiritual genes can access that tshuva. So God was desperate that great people should bring tshuva into the world because tshuva is such a great thing and it is a manifestation of the total vibrancy of an ashama like nothing else is. It needs great people to exercise. It needs great people to bring into this world. Once it's here, once it's exercised, ah, gewaldic, then we have the spiritual genes. All generations can have the genes of accessing that. So tshuva isn't the re resort or the refuge of the weak, the, the lame, the people that not, didn't make it in life, the failures. No. Tshuva is a manifestation of the greatest strengths of neshama. And it brings down the greatest energies of holiness into this world. That's, and it needed a great people. So God looked at this generation and said, this is the greatest generation that ever lived and will ever live. This is the generation. There is no other generation that can do it. So the least I have to do is at least take away the, 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 the prevention of sin. And then, if they won't sin, no, what can I do? But if they will sin, that's also good because they'll bring the tshuva into the world. Well, when did that generation bring tshuva into the world? They brought tshuva into the world in those 40 days between Rosh Chodesh Elul and 10 days in Tishrei, the Day of Atonement. And they worked those 40 days to redevelop the relationship with God, to redevelop the bond of Anila Dodi Vidodi Li. They brought the spiritual gift of tshuva into the world in those 40 days. And forever it remains etched into time that the neshamas of the Jews, the neshamas of Klal Yisrael, beg, Anila Dodi Vidodi Li. Why? Because it's in our spiritual genes. From who? From that generation that in those 40 days did everything to reconnect the Anila Dodi to the Vidodi Li. I asked before, what was Moses doing in, on the mountain for 40 days learning the Torah again? What, he forgot it all? He wasn't involved in the sin of the golden calf. What was he doing up on the mountain for 40 days? So the Talmud says, <laughs> Moses didn't leave one corner in heaven that he didn't argue and bang it out with God. That's what it says. What does that mean? Every Jew is connected Every neshama of the Jew is connected to the Torah. There's 600,000 letters in the Torah. There's 600,000 principal neshamas of which we are all part of. We're all connected to God through the holiness of Torah. When we sinned, we broke the connection. 
When Moses went up again to quote-unquote learn the Torah again for 40 days, it wasn't for his own self-learning that he was learning the Torah again, but what he was doing was he was attaching every neshama back to its letter in the Torah. That every neshama can say again, I belong to you, God, the Dodi Lee. So what Moses was doing, we were doing it on our levels down here, while Moses as our teacher was, was connecting back our neshamas to the roots that they had in the Torah. When we sinned and we cut the connection, Moses broke the tablets. When we are doing tshuva, we're not only doing tshuva, we're not only doing tshuva returning to God, but we're returning to our portion in the Torah. We're returning to our roots in the Torah, to the place that nurtures our neshamas. Moses is reconnecting. As one person put it to me last night in counseling, Rabbi, I need to be rewired. And it's a major job, but I think you can do it. <laughs> Rewire me. Okay? Moses was rewiring every neshama back to Torah in those 40 days. He didn't leave one corner. He didn't leave out one space of every neshama being connected back to its root. <clears throat> so when we ask ourselves, do I really have it in me? The answer is yes. There's a part of the neshama that's untainted. Why, how does that neshama wake up and scream out, Because that generation woke up that part of the neshama and screamed out to God, That was what made the energy. That's what made the connection in time. And this is why, this is why this period of time is called an ace fratzon. It's called a period of willingness. It's called a period of willingness. It's not that God is in a good mood. This period of time was blazed out by that generation. That generation blazed out a path that the neshama should search back for its relationship with God. It was blazed out by man saying, Ani Ladaidi. Man said, Anilodaydi. Man worked for 40 days and saying, I need you, God. Anilodaydi, beginning with the blowing of the shaper, saying that the relationship is important. And because man blazed it out, every Jew has within himself that virginity of soul that screams out and says, Anilodaydi to God. It's there. Obviously, it's not like Shabbos and it's not like other spiritual gifts that we can get it even without doing anything. Because how did that energy come into this world? Through our efforts. How do we access it again? By starting off El with a consciousness, with a mind that I want to find that part of my neshama. Because I know there's a part of my neshama that wants God. I want to find it. And I'm going to do that which is necessary to bring me, my neshama, back to Anilododividodili. Now, one can think to themselves, which relationship was more important? The first 40 days, where God chose us, and God said, I want to love you, and which is referred to, by the way, not as Anila Dodi Vidodi Lee, but in the Song of Songs, it's referred to as Dodi, Dodi Lee. God is saying, I am to you, and we are to him. Because that's really the way it started the first 40 days. God chose us, God brought himself to us, and then we responded to him. We said, Nasa Vinishma, we said, we'll listen. On the other hand, the third 40 days, it didn't start with God making the overture and then we responding. It started the other way. It started, Anila Dodi, the Dodi La. 
So a person can think for a minute and a person can say, the first one is most probably better where God makes the overture and God wants the relationship. That's the better one. But the one where it was already, it, it went on the rocks and I'm coming back and I'm saying, please take me in again. I want a relationship with you. It can never be the same. So that's what the Talmud says, and Moses said it in the Chumash. I prayed and I reconnected your Neshamas in those 40 days, and like the first 40 days. Don't ever think for a moment, don't ever think for a moment that this is already grade B. It's grade B, it's not the same thing. No, 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 no. The first was choice. The second comes through man's attempt to coming closer to God. The second one is extremely important. The same way that we were connected in all forms of connection, the first time it was all connected again through our coming to God. In other words, the relationship wasn't more vibrant when God initiated it. No, it's, it's an identical relationship. Now, <coughs> going through this, we come to, to ask a couple of questions. Okay. All of this is nice, but give me some practical things to do that will wake up within me the creation of El, which is the virginity of our Neshamis screaming out to God, Anila Dodi, I want to be with you. What can I do? Practical. On my notes over here, when I wanted to identify the practical stuff, I put a P in front of everything that's practical. In front of the things that are philosophy, I put A's, abstract. By the things that are practical, I put P's, P1, P2, P3, P4. Let me share with you some of the practicals. Okay. The first thing that I must tell you, the first and foremost, is that when the verse says, when you will go out to war against your enemy, it's a whole army that's going out to war. And when you'll go out to war, and it refers to it in the singular. When you will go out, it's singular tense, it's not, it's not plural, which is a problem. We're going out as a whole army, we're numbers. So why does it refer to it in the singular tense? So our mystical literature says that when we went out to war, we were bound together. We lived with harmony, we lived with unity so we were seen as one. When we live with unity and we live with harmony, so there's a spirituality that is radiated from us that comes out of our oneness that makes us successful on the, battle free, on the battleground. When we, are at this, when we are disunified, it's not only I'm not together with my other, the other person, if I'm not together with the other person, I'm missing something in myself as well. There's something missing in me as well. When it says, that we go out against the enemy, we went out as one. We were unified. We loved each other. We cared for each other. And because that, we were successful in the war. We were able to, to, to be successful in the war. As I referred before, and I made reference to this in a different class, I will cry for my father, which is God, and I will cry for the Jewish people, which is my mother, for a month of days. Elo. Father is obvious, God. But I'm going to cry for my mother. I'm going to cry for, I want to be part of the family. I want to be one with, with the Jewish people. I don't want to see fragmentation. The worst thing, the most painful thing is a family that's 
fighting with each everybody's fighting with everybody else. says, I went away from the family. I want to be part of the family. I want to see a, a unit family. So Elul is going out to war to find the Neshama, my personal Neshama. I will find my personal Neshama when I find my family, when I find this unity. So the first thing that I would tell you in terms of advice is that the first thing that we have to do in terms of finding ourselves is finding our whole family because we are our family. And we have to make a commitment of of trying as much as possible to see the whole individual, seeing the good of the other individual, to love the good of the other individual, to live in peace with the other individual. Yeah, we think that the Elul is the God-man relationship and we're going to go over there and we're going to salt the angels in heaven and we're going to do all kinds... Nonsense. Our, our finding our relationship with God and finding our own neshamas comes from finding our mother, the family that brings us together, the mother that keeps us together. So that's the first thing. The second thing, the second and third things which I'd like to point to is that the two other aspects, tefillah, prayer, and Torah. And I have to tell it to you from the biblical background. I wasn't perfectly honest when I told you the history. When Moses came down on 29 days and of, and there was no forgiveness, and he went back up on Rosh Chodesh El, there were two things, if you look in the Chumash, I'm not making this up, there were two things that happened. God said to Moses, write over the tablets and bring them up to me, which he did on Rosh Chodesh El. And another thing that happened is that Moses prayed and God revealed his 13 attributes of compassion to Moses, in which he was a new form of prayer was developed, the slichos, the prayers of forgiveness that Sfardim begin tomorrow morning and others begin a week before Rosh Hashanah. That whole new process, prayers for forgiveness, prayers to be able to do tshuva, was brought into this world. When? Rosh Chodesh El. Now mind you, there was not yet forgiveness, but God told Moses to rewrite the tablets. There was not forgiveness, but God revealed himself to Moses in prayer and revealed to him his 13 attributes of compassion. What's the significance of that? God did not forgive. God wasn't giving us the Ten Commandments again, but nevertheless, Moses was writing it, and God revealed himself in a form of prayer that he had never revealed himself to Moses before. What this is telling us is that the path back to the relationship is in Tyre and in Tefillah. The way that we bond ourselves back to God, even before we get forgiveness, is through the things that happened on Rosh Chodesh Elul. The Tefillah, making the attempts of reaching back to God through bonding with God in prayer and through Torah. These are the two ways that we awaken within ourselves the Anila Dodi back to God. So this is two and three. It's interesting. We're talking all night long about going out to fight a war, right? You know, going out to fight a war is referred to in our Chumash as a form of explaining prayer. You know why? Because when we have to stand before God and concentrate 
and really understand what we want and why we want it and that it should be justified and legitimate in God's eyes, we fight a tremendous war with ourselves. Moses, Jacob said in one place, Jacob says in one place, I accomplished this and this with my, with my bow and arrow, with my sword and with my arrow. And all of the commentaries say this re- refers to prayer because it's a tremendous war that we have to fight. Let me give you an example of the war that we have to fight. Let's say I stand before God and I say, I want to make a living. So God says, that's very nice. Why do you want to make a living? And I'm just going to play this out. Well, I want to make a living because I need uh, two cars and everybody else is making a living and I don't want to look like a schlep. So God looks at me and says, that's the reason why you want to make a living? Do you think that that's the reason why I want you to make a living? After all, if we're trying to persuade God, we have to say something that's going to make some kind of sense to God. So then, so the fact that I want it for X, Y, and Z doesn't mean anything. I have to be able to talk the language of God. God wants to give me something. Well, why does he want me to have it? Why is it important for God? Why is it important in God's eyes for me to have it? No, so then I play the game. Okay, I want it because I, want, I don't want to look like a schlep. God wants it because if I'll, have a li- I'll make a living, I'll be able to concentrate on doing things which are important, more important than life. So I'll tell you what, I really want it because I don't want to look like a schlep. But God's not interested in that. God wants it because I should be more in- involved in other things. So I'll say God's reason. So God says, you're a yo-yo. You don't think I know what's in your heart? If you don't want it for the right reasons, who do you think you're fooling? I know why you want it. So essentially what goes on is once I recognize the fact that God is the source, I also have to deal with the reasons, the legitimacy of the things. I have to deal with a tremendous amount of stuff. That's a tremendous war. That's a tremendous war. And I have to come to realize that this whole world that God is ready to give me is is a means towards a higher end. I think that the whole world, I think that the whole world is what? Just for me. And I'll try to punch in and out the religious time, time card and fulfill my obligations. You have nothing against me. I wrapped my throat. I mumbled my prayers. I went through the blessings. I did what I had to and finished. No, 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 no. But that's not the case. When I'm going to have to turn to God as the source of everything, I'm going to have to say it on God's terms and I can't fool anybody then I have to start groping with the fact that everything that was given to me in this world are tremendous presence. They were meant to be enjoyed, but they're all a means so that we should be able to concentrate on a higher end. Ooh, now we know one of the Elul's. I told you that one of the Elul's is the words, Loi Anachnu. What does Loi Anachnu mean? It is not for me. And what is the way that we spell it the other way? Lo anachnu, you are to me. The answer is, one brings the other. When I can stand in front of God and I say, Lo anachnu, this whole world isn't for a self-centered and selfish end of my own. Lo anachnu, this whole world is not, not just for my self-centered, uh, selfish request. Lo anachnu, it's not for me. I'm here to accomplish something. I'm here to bring the energy of God into this world, the holiness of God into this world. And I can do it in a way that's unique to me. So it's lo anachnu, it's, it's, 
It's not for my own selfish sentiveness. Then it gets to Lawanachnu. Then we become God's children. Lawanachnu. Then we belong. The low with the vav is, and we belong to God. That's the elul. <coughs> it's easy to understand as well how the words symbolize a place of refuge, because after all of the mistakes we make as the person that killed by mistake, God says, I'll give you a place where you can rebuild your life. Elul is the place where we can make the connection to God in spite of the mistakes that we made. I'll give you a place though you made the mistakes. <coughs> this process of realizing that we are here towards a higher end is the circumcision of the heart that we're talking about. Which spells out again the Elul. Now we understand even even more so the Aryeh Shag Milayira. The law of the lion is roaring. Who is not afraid? I think that the Aryeh Shag, the lion that's roaring, is really the lion within us. It's screaming out. There's a potential of of there's a potential. There's an Ari in each and every one of us. We shouldn't feel that we're weak. And that we're, we're working out of failure and out of weakness. No, it's Aryeh Shag. There's a lion on us that's roaring. Milayira, shouldn't I be afraid that I'm not coming to that call? <coughs> Aryeh Shag, Milayira. <coughs> I think that we covered some major ground here if we would want to all put it into capsule form, I think that the most accurate way to say everything that we said this evening is that the message of the 30 days of preparation is that each and every one of us possesses, not necessarily an intellectual or a conscious levels, each one of us possesses a virgin aspect to our neshamas that is crying for father and mother that is crying to, to be back with God, back with the Anila Dodi, crying to be included in that great neshama, that collective soul of the Jewish people. That's what the essence of it is. And that cry is the cry for the relationship with God. And everything that we do during the month of Elul in terms of trying to be more careful and trying to stay away from the material world and not getting being overindulgent in the physical in the physical world and everything else this is not a killjoy but what it is is I'm going to give myself an opportunity to hear the virgin aspect of my, my neshama there's a lot of noise in our lives that doesn't allow us to hear that that's that call and what the, the way we should approach Elul is, it's the opportunity for a new relationship that I am capable of having. It's a new relationship that I desire deep down. And I'm going to do that which puts me into tune with the yearning of that part of my neshama that is calling out to God, Anila Dodi. If we do that, God's response to us is the Dodi Lee. I am to you. All right, I'll take questions on this. Leah. I have uh, two questions, Rabbi. One, uh, just point of information. 
um, at, in the beginning uh, with Moses, in the Torah, does it state how many neshamas were involved that were was the Jewish nation? All of, it, all of our literature talks about 600,000 <coughs> principal souls. Now, there are more Jews than 600,000 souls, but the idea is those are the pools. Those are the sources. The of. Uh, it's not so much the original. Those are the, those are the roots. From the, each root of 600,000 can come thousands, if not millions, of souls. The other question, also a point of information, is Greek astrology based on the Torah uh, concepts of the months? You're making an assumption that I know Greek astrology, mm-hmm. which I don't. Um, well, that's the basic horoscope. There the is? Of, uh, of September, where it's low, is the Virgo, which is the Virgin. Uh, there is, the, uh, there are many parallels. There are many parallels, and uh, there is a book, which I imagine is very good, that just came out recently by Glazerson, okay, and it's called The Zodiac in the Torah Light. That's the name of the book. It's a paperback. Um, I think that he's definitely an authority to talk about it, and that's where to look. Um, I'm really I'm not knowledgeable enough to know where are the parallels, where are the deviations, but there is, there is, you know, there are parallels. The zodiac in the light of Torah. That's a little bit of a play on words, but. the, the author is Gla- Glazerson. He's the same author that wrote the mystical meanings of the alphabet and from Hinduism back to Judaism. He wrote those two books as well. So you see ex- what his leaning is, where his neshama is going. Yeah. Rabbi, I have three questions. Uh, one, there is one of the reasons I imagine, the one of the reasons for the Fast the seventeenth of Thomas is the sin of the golden calf. Correct. Uh, besides Teshuvah, within this period of time, uh, the month of Av, which precedes Elo, is there any significance to the fact that this is associated with a t- mourning period? In other words, uh, all this is taking place, and which later on maybe commentators bring in or the temple was destroyed during this period of time and so forth. It's an excellent it's an excellent question and I'm happy that you asked it because it will round out the picture very much. Uh, we spoke about the fact that in this period of time after the 17th of Thomas we know classically that two temples were destroyed and a period of mourning came in. We know that there's a period of mourning. We also know that there's a period of comfort the seven weeks of comfort which we dealt with two weeks ago. If we put together the information about the period of mourning and the period of comfort, which were two classes which we had two weeks ago and three weeks ago, we came up with the following formula. We came up with the formula that mourning, essentially what mourning is, is the loss of, of spiritual opportunity, the spiritual contact with God, the spiritual camaraderie with God that is possible. And the mourning is the sense of loss that we come to understand sometimes after having lost the relationship that we never understood while we had the relationship. But we pointed out that the mourning mourning is a process of regaining the relationship because by mourning the loss we come to appreciate the loss because 
after all, what can we cry about if we don't appreciate it and then feel the sense of loss? So mourning is not only crying over spilled milk in the sense of spirituality, but it's also coming to grips with what, the per- what God is all about and what the relationship really could have meant and did mean, but I took it for granted and I, I flaunted it and I lost it. But we said that the mourning is also tied up with a tremendous amount of suffering and a tremendous amount of punishment in having lost those things. So we said that punishment has a natural reaction of rebellion within the person. The person can't deal with punishment. He can't deal with suffering. And I explained it, and maybe I'm being a little bit naive about it, but I really don't think so because I have greater confidence in the, in the neshama of a person that really the deepest level of rebellion over suffering is because we misinterpret it as God rejecting us. And we can't deal with rejection. We can't deal with rejection. So the concept of comfort afterwards is don't think that the punishment is rejection because it all will lead to you returning to Israel, returning to the temple. If you put Avelis and suffering both together, mourning and comfort and consolation together, what do we come up with? We come up with the possibility for a new relationship with God. Avelis tells me the value of the relationship. The comfort tells me that God hasn't rejected you and he wants the relationship. So, essentially, what th- these are parts that build the relationship. Avelis tells me the value of it. The morning tells me that, okay, now you know the value of it, but maybe God doesn't want me anymore. The, the comfort and consolation says that it's not rejection. So now that I have the appreciation of the relationship plus the message that God hasn't rejected me, now I can move into Elul. I can move into to, to finding the part within my neshama that's saying Anila Dodi Vidodili. So there is a direct relationship. And it's very interesting that the commentaries say that God told Moses rewrite the Ten Commandments on Rosh Chodesh Elul. You know why? So let me again, this is unknown. These are the portions of the Torah that we read in the summer months. So our kids don't even bring it home for us to have to study. But if you look at the portions, the portions say that though the tablets were broken on 17 days in Tammuz, Okay, and they were terribly disturbed by it. But when Moses came down on 29 days in Av and said, I have to move the tent of contact with God outside of the camp and God has not forgiven you, then they went into mourning because they came to realize that now they maybe have, they lost access to something. And when God saw that they began mourning and that they couldn't deal with the loss, God said to Moses, write the Ten Commandments over again. So there's a direct relationship between the Avelos and the El that comes after it. There is a direct relationship. And that's a worthwhile parallel to make, you know, that connection that exists. Number two. Number two. Oh, second question. <laughs> the breaking of the 40 days. No, when was it? When was it? No, no, Tishabov was two weeks ago. 17 days of Thomas was three weeks before it. Three weeks before. That was the beginning of the three weeks? It's roughly, yes, exactly, exactly, exactly. I mean, what's come out of all of the classes is that uh, there is a tremendous depth of connection between what happened with that generation in these periods of time and how this becomes etched into time and etched into our neshamas for all times. 
It's etched into time, it's etched into neshama. And it's the unique combination of neshama, of soul and time, that, will, that, that is the significance of the whole Jewish calendar year. Visiting loved ones during the month of Elul in the, in the cemetery uh, is a, something that's done on Tisha B'Av, it's done on the yurt site. How did it come about to do this on the month of Elul? I'm not familiar with the month of Elul, but essentially if it is a custom in the month of Elul, it's tied, it's tied to the concept that, um, that being that the month is a month in which we, we let go of the stark realities and we live with the deeper realities of neshama, we, this is a time which is much more open to realizing that those that have passed away really live on in terms of their neshamas. And therefore our whole contact with God comes through those neshamas and we ask them to be messengers for us or in their merit that God should listen to us. But it's all part of the spirit that our consciousness is not the consciousness that's measured in the realities of physical, but reality measured in the realities of neshama. And that's why the whole period... Our, if we go to a cemetery and we pray at a gravesite, what we're saying essentially is that there's a reality more than just dollars and cents and flesh and blood. That there's a reality that lives in the levels of neshama. That's a mindset which is critical for, for the whole attitude of how the Jew is coming back to God. Now, yeah. the last question. Uh, there are many reasons interpreters give, commentators give, as to why there are two versions of the Ten Commandments in the five books of Moses, the latter being the Deuteronomy. Uh, has any attention ever been played to maybe, and there's ever been as stated by anybody, that maybe the first version of the Ten Commandments was the version that was originally given to Moses by God and the Deuteronomy version, the, the uh, version which Moses rewrote. Is that possible? Okay, I'll tell you, the, the question is an excellent question. We dealt with it, and the general gist of it, and this makes a lot of sense, is that the Second Ten Commandments, everything that's different than the Second Ten Commandments is because it deals with the recognition of the people that sinned and returned. And therefore, many things are reworded to be more realistic to a person that made a mistake and now is trying to come back. So it is, in a certain sense, a Torah that's redefined for the Baal Tshuva. How's it different? Yeah, what is it? How it's different? Okay, there are some major differences. In the First Ten Commandments, the Torah tells us, remember the Shabbos. In the Second Ten Commandments, the Torah tells us, protect the Shabbos. Okay? Um, in the Shabbos tapes, we deal with why there is that dramatic difference. In the First Ten Commandments, we are told to keep the Shabbos as a reminder that God created the world. In the Second Ten Commandments, we are told to keep the Shabbos because God took you out of Egypt. Uh, there are various other distinctions as well, but those are two of the major ones. Um, without going into it again, all of the commentaries speak about the fact that God is a realist. And God, therefore, readdresses the Torah to the Baal Tshuva, and therefore tries to target that which is the realistic approach for the person that has made a mistake and is coming back. It's a very intricate study. The Maral dedicates chapters in one of his books 
to deal with it and God willing in the future we'll deal with it but um, it's a valid question and this is the, the way it's understood because after everything is said and done Moses was instructed to write the second ten commandments but he was taking a dictation and he took it up there for, uh, for proofreading and then brought it down so just to say that it was his own you know his own work uh, is less logical than assuming that it came out of God's sensitivity for a people that had made a mistake and had corrected the mistake